Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Hi, this is Ilana Thompson with Palette Exposure. My guest today is Scott Beatty. I've been very fortunate to be um, familiar with Scott's work for many, many years. I think we decided that it's at least 15 <laughs> from memory. And um, he's really such a prominent um, member of not just the bartending community, but really a leader in many respects. Um, he actually started a program at uh, Cyrus many moons ago, and um, he'll talk. He'll tell us all about it. I'm really excited, which really kind of was at the very forefront of the craft cocktail movement, and inspired a lot of his peers um, to pursue it. Um, his level of knowledge and integrity is formidable. Um, he's currently a beverage manager, uh, beverage director, excuse me, at um, Meadowood in Napa Valley, um, a very prestigious spot um, that carries with it a lot of responsibility. Um, so welcome, Scott. Well, thank you for having me, Alona. Um, I appreciate your, your flattery. Um, you've been very generous um, with that um, to me for many, many years now, and I, I, I want to say thank you. Um, yeah. So we're recording during quarantine just to contextualize it for everyone. Um, so it's been an interesting time for sure, but it created an interesting space for um, great, thoughtful, deep discussions about what matters. I think we all were kind of forced in the slowdown mode. Um, and that I guess one of the fringe benefits of this very unfortunate situation, just connecting to people that we, care about that we you know are close to and also ourselves a little bit so it provided that necessary lull i think that we humans could use once in a while um i really would love to start at the very beginning um which is where you were born where you went to school that sort of stuff just bio <laughs> way back when um i was born um in the 70s in uh in san francisco um and i grew up in uh, laurel heights the presidio heights area um which is a pretty fancy neighborhood now it was always a very nice neighborhood but it was a little bit different than, than what you see now um uh my father was an attorney and my mother was a student for many years um and uh, yeah it was just an incredible place to grow up you know, I, I think even my, some of my earliest memories were going to all the, the myriad restaurants that were uh, in San Francisco, the incredible Southeast Asian ones, the Chinese restaurants, you know, the Italian ones. Like my, my earliest memories are really of, of, of eating at these, these fantastic, you know, neighborhood restaurants um, and getting great takeout, bringing it home. Um, and I think some of that translated into, you know, my appreciation for, for international flavors uh, that I've tried to incorporate into, into cocktails over the years. You know, I became a started bartending. Just that, that familiarity with all those different, you know, incredible spices and citruses and, and you know, incredible flavors and textures. And, and um, I think those, those, those early experiences, you know, ended up becoming instrumental in me, um, the, my type of, of cocktail. Um, yeah. 
So uh, yeah, grew up in San Francisco, um, ended up going to college in Santa Cruz um, later on, and then um, UC Berkeley, graduated there in the 90s um, with an English degree, which I've often joked, um, gets a lot of people into the restaurant business as a career <laughs> and keeps you there. Uh, I shouldn't say that, it was a fantastic experience at Berkeley. But um, I had started out in the restaurant business in high school, you know, washing dishes and doing kind of back of the house jobs. And by the time I got into college, I started doing more front of the house jobs, first as a host at a restaurant called Perry's, which is on Union Street. Um, just recently celebrated its, its 50th anniversary, which is pretty incredible if you think about it for, for a restaurant anywhere, but particularly in San Francisco. Um, yeah, I was 20 years old and I became a host there. And uh, when I, be, uh, when I became 21, they got me, um, they allowed me to be a waiter there. And um, while I was doing that, I started bartending across the street at, at, a, at a bar called the Blue Light, which is also still there. It's been 10 years, kind of more of a sports bar, like a locals bar. But um, yeah, that's, that's what really got me going in the restaurant business. And um, I, think, I think that I fell in love with the business itself first, with the culture of working in a restaurant. You know, and also with making tips because that was the first time in my life that I really had actual you know, cash money in my hand. I realized that I could, you know, make one or two hundred dollars doing one shift. If I wanted to do a double or get a second job, you know, you could make even more money. Um, and that was that was a it was like a real sense of empowerment, you know, of, of being able to to actually go out in San Francisco and, and enjoy it. You know, be able to take my girlfriend to a nice restaurant or be able to go to a concert and, and have lots of drinks and. Um, you know, I think that was, I, I sort of was, I was in love with San Francisco, which I'd always been in love with, but I was also falling in love with just the culture of the restaurants, the, the camaraderie, you know, the, there's definitely quite a bit of partying that goes on too, but that just the whole idea of, of working really hard, making great money, giving great service, really learning how to do it well, um, and making, you know, a, a living out of it. Um, you know, I think I'm, 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 to this day, I'm very, very nostalgic about those times. Um, bartending, I think when I first, you know, began doing it, it was, it was just a lot of fun. Um, there, it wasn't so much about making craft cocktails. It was like, how many, how quickly can you make 10 lemon drop shots? You know, how quickly can you make four cosmopolitans for the three ladies, that, the four ladies that just walked in? Um, how quick can you pour a beer without making a mess? Um, you know, it was, it was just like learning how to be really fast. You know, can you stay on top of glassware? That's something that's so essential with bartending. I've seen some of the best bartenders just sit there and allow dirty glasses to pile up on the end of the bar. And, you know, that's an essential thing. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I, it wasn't so much about, I wasn't reading any old cocktail books at that time. There, there wasn't, wasn't really anybody to mentor me into how to make better drinks. It was more of these just kind of basic things, which, you know, which is all that people really wanted, at least in those, and, uh, at the Blue Light, my first, my first job. Uh, I ended up switching over to Post Trio in 1998, um, which was a Wolfgang Puck restaurant. Um, and uh, that was my first fine dining job. Um, and I was a bar back there on Friday, Saturday nights, which was a, a serious workout because you had to run up and down three flights of stairs, constantly hauling ice and doing everything else, you know, for, for eight hours at a time. Um, and uh, they also allowed me to bartend um, some breakfast and lunch shifts on Mondays and Tuesdays. Uh, which was mostly, you know, pouring glasses of wine and making Bloody Marys. But it was, it was the first time I worked at a high-end restaurant, and that was an incredible experience, you know, because there was uh, you know, celebrities coming through all the time, and it was just so, 
you know, all the, the socialites in San Francisco, and it was just so busy. We do 500 dinners a night, and you know, this is fine dining. You know, this is this is like beautifully plated food, um, and it was just amazing to see that that, that machine, you know, at, which at the time was run by the Rosenthal brothers in the kitchen, and Kim Beto, um, who's kind of been a fixture in the in the wine and the liquor business for years. Um, he worked for Southern Wine and Spirits for many years. I think he's now switched over to, to, to uh, Vice President Joseph Phelps. But in any case, he was running this just, you know, this machine. It was, it was, it was just, uh, it was the first time I was really working with some of the best in the business. And it was also the first time that I started becoming more interested in making better cocktails, you know, because I wasn't, um, I was working in a nightclub also on the side, but my main job was working at Post Rio and, and a couple of the bartenders there were, were showing me some more, you know, intricate cocktails and talking about, you know, the history of a Manhattan, the history of an old fashioned, you know, um, starting to use um, the better liquor, you know, which at the time, this is the, the sort of late 90s, might have been a, a, a flavored Grey Goose or something. Um, but it did taste better than regular vodka. It did make a better lemon drop or cosmopolitan. You know, certainly the Mandarin Grey Goose made a delicious Cosmo. Um, you know, it was uh, just kind of taking the basic stuff I've been doing before and then starting to do it a little bit better. You know, learning about the importance of fresh juice. You know, that was the first job where we literally juiced everything to order. Back at the Blue Light, you know, we were using sweet and sour, which was fine for that for that bar. That's all that you know that people expected. But you know, when 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 I switched over to fine dining, it's like, no, here's a, there's a little little vat of uh, half limes, and when you make a Cosmo, you're going to squeeze one of those and make the drink. You know, and that was uh, that was that was not the norm um, for bars back then. Um, there were there were also murmurs of it happening at like Absinthe which uh, Marco Dionysus was the first um, sort of cocktail director there. And they opened up, I believe, in 1999. And that was the first place that I ever had a really, really well-made, incredible drink, um, which was a drink called the Ginger Rogers, which was essentially a, a gin mojito, where he had, you know, had a really good, high-quality local gin, you know, fresh mint, fresh um, lime juice, uh, a ginger syrup that he cooked up himself, finished it with ginger beer, and it was just like, it, it, it aired on the side of tart rather than sweet. You know, before we would all air on the side of sweet because that's kind of what people wanted when they wanted a, a drink like that. Um, but he really upped the acid a bit. And I remember drinking it there and it was just extraordinary. And then I really got into his menu. He had this, this menu that had probably had 40 drinks on it. And they were all old recipes that he'd resurrected and just picked out the proper glassware, had only fresh, pure ingredients. Um, really good spirits, and he's also probably to the state the fastest bartender I've ever seen in my life. So he was just whipping up these amazing things, just super, super fast. And I just had my jaw drop. I was like, I, if I'm going to do this. I want to, I want to be that guy. <laughs> uh, not to mention the fact he's talking to people the whole time. He's funny as as, as hell. You know, was, um, that's that that was really that experience. That guy, that bar was the one that really made me look at everything differently. And by the time I left Post Trio and started working at a restaurant called Aziz, which was on Fourth and Folsom, it's where Zero Zero Pizza is. Um, I remember I actually got hired at that job because when I met with the, the general manager, <clears throat> um, I was telling him about Marco, and he knew Marco, and I was like, I really want to start doing things like that. I, would, I want to start making cocktails, and, you know, with that um, with that vision. Um, and then as it turned out, Marco and I became friends. He used to come into the bar all the time and he'd bring in old cocktail books that he had or old cocktail magazines. And we'd start talking shop. And, um, you know, that was, uh, that, was, uh, that was kind of the beginnings of it for me. And then the dot-com um, crash happened. 
And I ended up, uh, well, Ozzy ended, you know, it was doing 200, 250 covers a night. It went down to doing 20 pretty quickly. And I was, you know, broke. Um, and, you know, I ended up moving up to St. Helena where my father lived and my stepmother. And um, I ended up moving up there to, uh, to open up Martini House, which was a packed Paco restaurant. Um, and it had, uh, this is where Goose and Gander is now, if you've ever been there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up helping out with Goose and Gander when, when it reopened uh, that space in 2012. But going back to 2001, um, you know, Pat Coletto had built out this gorgeous, gorgeous, like kind of speakeasy-ish bar. Now, this was before the speakeasy thing was a, was a thing. Um, you know, a beautiful fireplace, just a gorgeous, you know, bar made out of, uh, um, it was like an old farm door with an old railing as the bar step and just tile on top and these beautiful handmade like copper acorn lights. I mean, it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous bar. And um, our bar manager there, Terry, um, really encouraged us to start doing, you know, creative cocktails. And so um, I started getting things from my father. My father had a whole variety of citruses um, growing at his house, Meyer lemons, civil oranges, um, all kinds of interesting limes. And uh, I started using those to, again, do those sort of basic things, you know, a mojito or a lemon drop or a cosmopolitan. But this time, it's, uh, we're using fresh Meyer lemon juice. And I, I, became with the Car- I became friends with the Karakasevich family who owned Charbet. And they were making handmade, all-natural Meyer lemon vodka, blood orange vodka, key lime vodka. Um, so that was, uh, you know, that was when I, when I first started using um, local, fresh, seasonal produce. Um, and so, yeah, so blood orange cosmos, Meyer lemon drops, that kind of thing, you know, it was, uh, it was fun. And, um, also at that time, Nick Payton and Douglas Bean, um, Nick Bean, a very well-known front of the house person, um, uh, the Squire room, Gary Danko, Chris Carlton, um, and Doug Keen at the time being the sort of up and coming chef who was really building the name for himself at Jardinaire had been very well received, very well received by Michael Bauer with the reviews um, of his work at Jardinaire. They had been plotting and scheming to open up um, a really high-end, um, sort of a you know, French laundry-like experience over in Sonoma County in Healdsburg. And um, they had moved to town in St. Helena and the project had gotten backed up a bit. So they, they ended up opening up Market, which was a small, casual kind of American um, uh, food concept, you know, great fried chicken, great burger, that kind of thing, um, in town. And, uh, they ended up coming into Martini house a lot and, and having some of my cocktails and we became friends and I was, you know, very passionate about what I was doing. And I was starting to go to more farmer's markets and starting to read more old cocktail books and trying to rethink everything that was on the menu. And, you know, they, they seemed to have an appreciation for my, my passion for it. And they ended up telling me about what they were trying to do over at Healdsburg. I didn't even know what Healdsburg is. Um, but I remember going over to Nick's house and he laid out all the, the blueprints on this table outside. And he's like, you know, we're going to have, it's going to be part of this very small 14 room, you know, amazing European style hotel. And um, when you walk in on the left side, there's going to be this, this beautiful bar made out of you know, pearl walnut. And there's going to be Venetian plaster. And on the right side, there's going to be this beautiful library with all these books. And people will be able to sit there and have, have breakfast in the morning. But the, the real draw is going to be the restaurant. And the bar is going to be on the left. And I want you to run it because I think that you've got a real passion for cocktails. You seem to know a lot about spirits. And, um, you know, we'd love for you to be a part of it. And I was flattered because it's the first time anybody would asked me to be a barman. You know, 
And uh, I just I said yes on the spot and made plans to, to actually relocate out to Healdsburg. And, you know, he basically told me that I could do whatever I wanted as long as people responded well to it. And Doug told me, you know, if you want to use the kitchen, um, just, that was very unusual back then. The chefs were not very keen on letting bartenders go into the kitchen under any circumstances. But he's like, you know, if you want to come in well before service and, and use the ranges and, you know, do some pickling, do whatever you want to do, you can do it. I'll give you a little space in the fridge. You can throw your food there. You know, it's like he was very open to that. Um, and they were just, you know, giving me the kind of support that I hadn't had before at other restaurants. Because they're like, if you just do what you want as long as people like it and, and we get busy. You know, we'll, you know, you're you're the man, basically. And so I uh, got all excited, and I did ended up doing more research and going out to Kentucky to study bourbon, and going to Mexico to study tequila, and doing everything that I could leading up to, you know, the time when we were opening, which was in March of 2005. And uh, a funny thing happened, like once we did open up, I had I had a nice program, and I actually had a 40 page spirits menu with descriptions of every single bottle that was on the back bar. I tried to like research it as much as possible so that if people wanted to get into the spirits knowledge, you know, uh, it was all right there. You know, it might be something that, you know, you could just sit there and flip through and read, you know, while you're waiting for your guests to get there, you know, if you really want to geek out all the information that's there. And the cocktail menu was on, was on the first page and there was basically five seasonal things and five riffs on classics. And I felt pretty good about it opening up and, and, and when we opened, people responded well to it. But as the days went on, I realized that I was, you know, really playing with the, with the big boys. Like the food that Doug was, 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 was putting out was, you know, very quickly considered some of the best food in California and then later the rest of the country. Um, you know, and, and Nick's service was legendary. You know, him, you know, walking around the room with the, with the champagne caviar cart and telling people about all the different caviars and champagnes that were available and the, the cheese cart that he had, you know, with, with 20 kinds of cheese. And so after the main part of your meal, you know, Nick would come up and give you these amazing stories about where this cheese came from in France and this one from Italy and this local one. And it was just, it was, I was just, I was in awe. Jason Alexander, um, who now runs the wine programs um, in San Francisco or, um, Drawing a blank right now. <laughs> it's the one that's like the dim sum style place, like right next to um, the Fillmore. Ah, I know, I know. I'll think of it right after it's too late. I know which one you're. State bird provisions. Jesus, state bird provisions. We haven't been able to go and I haven't been able to go out in San Francisco for so long that I've forgotten like some of my favorite restaurants. <laughs> he's he's the. Yeah, it's an, an, yeah, it's amazing. It's just. State Bird Provisions and The Progress, those two restaurants, you know, two of yeah. my favorites in the city. Um, but uh, anyway, he was running the, with the wine, the initial wine program at, uh, at Cyrus. And, and I was just watching these guys do their thing. And, I'm, and my part was to run the bar in the whole, you know, front part of the, of the restaurant. And um, I really felt totally inadequate. It, I, I felt like I was, these people were so much more knowledgeable and so much more talented than me that I, I kind of, you know, I started to freak out about it. And, and the way that I cope with that kind of anxiety is usually to go gain more knowledge, you know, go to more farmer's markets, like start growing more things at home, reading more old cocktail books and some of the new contemporary ones that were coming out there. You know, spending a lot of time in the kitchen, you know, burning things to a crisp oftentimes. Uh, you know, just a lot of trial and error and, um, you know, just just really trying to come up with, with better and better and better products. And after a few months, it, I, you know, it, it, it was a really interesting cocktail program. It started to really take shape. 
it became very, very seasonal. And um, I started to focus a lot on presentation because as Cyrus, you know, everything that is put before a guest, you know, has to be compelling. It has to not only be delicious, it has to look amazing. Presentation was a huge thing. So I wanted to up my presentation game. And this, this was kind of the early um, days of me using a lot of edible flowers and um, going to farms and picking, you know, herbs myself and bringing them to, to the restaurant. Um, you know, trying to use a lot of wild things like wild fennel fronds and um, wild California bay leaves, wild mustard flowers. You know, I can go on and on like those kinds of things. Those were sort of the, the early inklings of it. I would really spend, we were only open five days a week in the beginning. So I, I, every day I would spend about two hours kind of collecting things. And that would be a part of the cocktail program for that day. You know, um, whether it was picking wild blackberries and pushing them through a sieve to make like a blackberry syrup or um, cutting off flowers and herbs and putting them in water and putting them on top of the bar or picking grapes um, and freezing them. As, as you can see from like the cover of my book, you know, this, you can see there's frozen grapes that are stuck on the side of the glass, you know, that kind of thing. It was like, okay, what, what do I have access to? What will my, you know, what can I get from farmers? What can I pick for free? What can I pick for my own garden? Um, you know, it was, it was really about hyper seasonality and trying you know, it was something I was just slowly getting better and better and better at. And because people were um, coming into the restaurant to write about the food and the experience, um, and, you know, the place very quickly got, you know, Michael Bauer's highest rating for, for a new restaurant. Um, he would never give four stars right off the bat. He had to wait like a year for that. So, but we got three and a half across the board, which is you know, <laughs> as good as, you know, it was the highest one you could get being a new restaurant. And of course, subsequently did get the four stars, did get two Michelin stars from from the Michelin Guide, which didn't come out in California until 2007, I believe. But when that came out, we got two. We were one of only four restaurants that two. Um, in any case, people were coming in to check out the restaurant, and then inevitably they, they started to notice the cocktail program, program, and then people started to write about that as well. And, you know, um, Gary Regan, uh, who I miss very, very much, we lost him last year, was the first writer to put my, my Thai boxer in an article, um, which I think you you were a fan of, right, Alana? That's, that's exactly how our relationship started. Thank you for mentioning it. It's one of my favorite stories just because it's the only time in my professional career I saw something in the paper and I literally just about got in the car and drove to the source of said description, which was the Thai boxer recipe, which had a very long list of ingredients, almost read like a scroll which immediately got my attention in that of itself. And I knew nothing about you, but I knew that anyone that created something this special and this, and this creative, really, um, I need to know. I need to know more. The cocktail is absolutely delicious, by the way. Well, it's funny. When you think about it, thank you again for your kind word. Um, I mean, it was basically a mojito. You know, <laughs> at its core, it was, it was rum, fresh lime juice, sugar, soda, and mint. But, you know, I, I was like, how can I do this differently? And there, there was a farm that was growing Thai basil. And so I started using Thai basil. And um, actually, I remember Doug had this amazing um, Thai lobster salad um, oh. on the menu. So it was cold, yeah, cold lobster with mango. And he called it Thai Trinity herbs. And I never heard that term before. So Thai Trinity herbs were Thai basil, mint, and cilantro. And uh, it was this beautiful dish. And... Um, I was like, Thai Trinity herbs. Oh, yeah, I just saw that 
Love Farms was growing Thai basil. So I go down there and I get some of that and I get some cilantro and mint from them. And I muddled it into the glass like you would a mojito, but now there's three things in there. And then Marco at Charbet was making this beautiful vanilla bean infused rum. So I was like, let's try it with that. Then you do the fresh lime juice. And I've been working with uh, making my own ginger syrup, which is Marco had done um, with his, um, his ginger Rogers and stuff. Did some of that. And then um, a little bit of ginger beer. And, you know, it ended up being this delicious drink. And, and Gary, um, Gary never came out and had it at Cyrus, but he recreated it at Hudson Valley where he was living. And, you know, um, emailed me and just said, you know, this is absolutely delicious. I want to include it in my, in my weekly column on cocktails. And I was so flattered. I was like, oh, my God. Like my hometown paper, the San Francisco Chronicle, that's where the, the cocktailian, I believe that was the name of the column. Yeah, the cocktailian um, was. And uh, yeah, that was the first time I ever got to see my name in the paper. And it was very, I mean, it was flattering, but it was also one of those things that made me think, oh my God, I've got to do better now. I've got to like, you know, that anxiety kicked in again and that sort of insecurity, um, you know, and I was just like, I've got to do better. I've got to do better. So I kept working even harder. And then, um, Linda Murphy, who was, who was, um, you know, the, the head wine writer for the Chronicle, um, happened to live in Healdsburg and she started becoming a regular and we would talk a lot about drinks and about wine, and about, um, you know, those kinds of things. And then, um, one day she's like, you know what, I want to, I want to write an article about you. And I was like, cool. And, um, she's like, I want to follow you around for an entire day. I want to see what you do. And so she spent the whole day with me going to different farms and, um, then came back to Cyrus with me and we, we worked in the kitchen. And um, took, uh, sent over a photographer. He took a bunch of pictures. Um, she sat there with service through, through service with me too. Um, and I thought it was going to be like this little, you know, mentioning in the Chronicle, like, "Ooh, cool work at Cyrus. Come check it out with a couple pictures." And it turned out it was four full pages of the food and wine section in the Chronicle, including the first page, which was literally just the, this huge picture of, of me bartending and then all these crazy drinks on the side. And then you open it up. It was two more full pages. And I, I was like, Oh my God, this, you know, this is crazy. And, um, yeah, that, that's, that was a real game changer for me. You know, shortly thereafter, 10 speed press and I started talking about doing a book, you know, and this was the first cocktail book that they'd ever done. You know, they subsequently had done so many of the other really um, awesome cocktail books out there, you know, the death and company books. Uh, Smuggler's Cove, um, so many of them, but, um, but my, my little book, Artisanal Cocktails, which uh, came out in 2008, um, that was that was the first one that tends to be pressed and it was really just an account of what I was doing in 2005, 2006, and 2007, um, you know, working with seasonal produce, you know, the book is broken down by the seasons, it starts in the winter with all the great citrus that we get around here, and then also trying to work with um, local distilleries. And I didn't do that exclusively, but, you know, I, I really, that book uh, that Michael Pollan wrote, that seminal book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, that came out in 2006, that one really changed my perspective on everything I was doing. You know, the book is, it's about many things. It's mostly about our food system. You know, I think the first 100 pages is just it's about corn alone. But um, what I took from it afterwards was trying to put a face behind the things that I was using whenever possible. You know, you can't you can't do that exclusively. I think at, at this point, um, or certainly not cost effectively. But um, you know, I really wanted to I wanted to know where my, you know, where my food was coming from. Um, food meaning produce and flowers and herbs and things that I use in, in the drinks. And, uh, I wanted to know the people that were making these wonderful you know these wonderful spirits. So I started working 
um, a lot with, with uh, you know, Lance Winters over at St. George. And then that was also Hangar One at the time. He was making those products. Um, you know, Blade Gin down in Belmont. You know, 209 Gin, uh, which is made in San Francisco. You know, um, Jermaine Roban, you know, which is made up in Ukiah. Amazing brandies. Um, you know, I was just really trying to use local products. Now, you know, there's so many amazing micro distilleries in this area. Um, back then, there was just kind of inklings of it, but it was really becoming a thing that's now all over the, the country, you know, which is which is great. Uh, so it was really, th that was what the book was it about. It was about put a face behind what you're using, try to give it some meaning. Um, not that it's like better and that if you don't do this, you're making lesser cocktails, but just to really enjoy the process of it. You know, my, my hope with the book was that I would inspire other bartenders professional bartenders and home bartenders to just start, you know, stop using sweet and sour, you know, use, use fresh citrus. If you go to a market and you see that they got Meyer lemons and, you know, blood oranges, like use that to make your drink. You know, don't, don't just, you know, buy packaged orange, you know, um, when you go to the store to buy a bottle of liquor, think about what you're buying. Don't just buy the mass produced stuff that you see ads for everywhere. Like, you know, there's people that live in this area that are making wonderful things and, you know, give them a, give them a shot. You know? So, uh, yeah, that's, that's essentially what the book was about. The conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Ilona Thompson.